that was an awkward start. Hey, welcome everybody. Um, I'm Bob Krell. I'm your host and uh, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And uh, thanks for joining us this Thursday. Some of you may be watching us live. Some of you may be watching us uh, recorded after the fact. These are all good ways to get to us. Uh, we are live streaming on the Healthy Indoors online global community right now, as well as on Facebook, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, and several other places. So uh, great show coming up today. Um, we're going to be answering the question of, of how uh, is there another methodology or that we may be able to start assessing mold in the indoor environment? Um, and uh, joining us today uh, will be uh, two great guests, but I first want to put a little pitch out here for the Healthy Indoors Online community, because in the event you're not watching the show live on the community, you probably should be, and you can watch it afterwards here. All right. So um, the community is a platform that we've had out there for uh, in beta for about a year now, but we're really actively promoting it. And uh, this is like where we live stream from and uh, all other kinds of stuff. It's not just really a content place, but it's more of a networking and a literal online community where you can engage with others uh, from all over the world and various different disciplines. So anyway, um, today's show is uh, kind of interesting. Uh, we're joined today by uh, Dr. Michael Pinto from Wondermakers Environmental and uh, Rachel Rubelay from, uh, she's Director of Laboratory Operations at Air Answers. I, I almost jumped in and said the old company name. I, you know, it happens. It's okay. Yeah, I know. So, so Michael, uh, Michael is a long time uh, consultant and professional in this industry. You know, he's, he's well known uh, in, in many spheres. Uh, he's been around, uh, almost i guess as long as me right probably i mean <laughs> we're old now you're you're, you're really skating on uh, thin I, I ice know. There, well, no Thank i mean i mean it in a very a very affectionate and positive way uh you know you've been years, involved as a consultant friend. a trainer uh you've been actively involved with organizations uh doing uh presentations at industry conferences uh and uh writing papers right authoring articles just we'll get to that in a moment um also you've been active on many committees uh standard yeah. setting and everything so yeah, that's yeah. what happens when you've uh, been doing this for four decades. So, so you actually have been doing it forty years. Wow! Yeah. So, you're, you, you, so you've been there a little longer than me. Guess I'm at I'm at like thirty six now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you were well, just a baby when uh, I was. I was. I was a child. I was only fourteen when I started. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. So Rachel, you're the newcomer. Uh, you know. No, so, so, I'm a newbie here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So today's show has been pre as predicated. Um, Michael authored a, an article uh, in Healthy Indoors magazine, uh, actually, uh, uh, back uh, in uh, April and May, it ran, it was a two part series, uh, talking about a comparison of air answer sampling technology to uh, standard sport samples for mold investigations. And uh, it, it, interesting, you know, very interesting read. If you haven't read it thus far, we'll have the links in the uh, comments available. But uh, certainly, um, 
it, it raises some questions, you know, as as to what maybe we can do with this uh, with this new technology. So on, I I guess without further ado, we'll we'll get into it a little bit, right? Um, the um, again, it's it's a new technology in that you've been out for a couple of years though, right? Since yeah. you, so it's not that new. It's not like it came out last week. Um, well, I think Bob, I'm going to cut in for just a second though. Please do. The, the interesting thing about this is that the Air Answers technology has been out there uh, for multiple years, but they were focused on the allergen sector of the industry. So they really came up with this uh, technology and found out that it worked great to uh, measure airborne allergens. And so cat and uh, dog allergens and dust mites and all of that stuff. And that was their initial focus, and now their um, understanding, and, and that's where we came in, helped them to understand that the technology is actually very useful in the mold arena, as well as uh, for the allergens. So that was one of the things that attracted me to them, is that it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't, well, we're two weeks old, and we think we can make a difference in the mold arena, Uh yeah, okay, come back to me in a couple of years, right? Because mm -hmm. you and I have both seen the latest flash in the pan, whether it be a chemical or a piece of equipment or sampling or whatever it is. And then it just doesn't have any legs and mm -hmm. you don't want to be associated with it. This one is very different. I'm excited about it. I'm intrigued, I think is probably the best word. Absolutely intrigued by it because I still don't understand all of the things that I think it might be able to do for us. Well, I know we had Rachel on the show uh, last year, um, earlier last year. We we talked uh, talked about you know this technology a bit back then, yeah. and and it is it it is uh, unique in that there's you know a lot of a lot of different layers to it. It's almost like peeling the skin of the onion, right? I mean, there's there's oh, it, you can do a lot with it. Is. We can do a lot with it. Um, uh, like Michael was saying, our our main focus before was allergens. And then we found out, wow, this, this device captures all types of biological contaminants in the air. And what else can we capture with this? And what other assays can we develop to in the laboratory to detect these uh, particular contaminants? So um, we've kind of evolved over to different kinds of molds. So we, uh, we test molds to the genus level. Um, we have uh, powdery mildew for the, uh, the cannabis growers. Um, that's very important to them. Uh, we're actually able to detect COVID. So we've been able to do that. Um, viruses, which are particles down to 0.1 micron in size. Um, and then we're constantly looking at what we can add next, what assays people want. So then we can add that to our laboratory menu. So, Michael, you, you got, you know, again, th this was a, you came to us with this article a few months back, uh, you know, proposing doing it. And I was like, yeah, th this seems interesting because obviously this is uh, it's a new twist to um, collection. Right. It's it's not the assays, the actual the actual analysis is all standard analysis protocols for the most part. Although I did I did see that you're you've got, uh, Rachel, something called LAL. We can get into that a little bit later, uh, mm -hmm. which is that's a proprietary thing that you guys do. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's beta glucan. It's, okay. It uses a certain type of pathway called the LAL, but it's a, a beta glucan assay where we detect actively growing mold. Okay. Um, so Michael, give us, give us a little bit of a rundown of what, you know, you, you mentioned that you saw the, uh, you saw this technology and you knew that it was, you know, being used. I, I'm assuming that you were interested in it initially for allergen testing and, you know, 
or you know, how, how did I guess the question is to both of you? How did this? How did, how do we get to uh, get to using this for mold? Okay, so from my perspective, it was a little bit more straightforward than that. Um, I wasn't much aware of the technology, and I do my best to, you know read uh, healthy indoors and look at the ads and talk to people and get to as many shows as I can and that sort of stuff and uh, actually met the air answers people at a trade show and then uh, you know just being the jerk that I am I always go up and talk to people and uh, you know pressure them with questions about how the things work and what's going on and uh, of course they were able to answer all sorts of interesting questions and the next thing you know we're uh, developing a bit of a relationship and uh, starting to figure out how we might be able to help one another. And uh, so, so this study, you've, Rachel, this study was done with multiple multiple people did this, or was this just something that you did? Uh, you partnered with Wonder Makers to do this. I, I know for the yeah. article it was Wonder Makers, but this was actually done um, through uh, Doug Hoffman in in Florida. So we worked with some of the. Uh, indoor air quality specialists who were in Florida and we did the testing with them. So. Oh, okay. So I, I was, I was under the impression that Michael did it. So I, that's my, that's my first mistake of today's show. Um. <laughs> well, well, the, the, the answer there is that the sample collection and the development of the uh, sampling protocol and everything that was done between uh, air answers and normie. And then, um, as often happens in a situation like that, you generate this massive amount of data. And so we were um, thrilled and pleased to, that they thought that we might be the people who could help make sense yeah. out of all this information just because of the experience in the industry. And as you well know, Bob, we've uh, you know done these sorts of, of papers and just having somebody else look at the data that isn't uh, part of the Air Answers team yeah. mm -hmm. Well, you're no stranger to white papers. Michael's definitely no stranger to the white papers. Oh, he did an amazing job. And also he was good at taking all the data and, and putting that into a story that makes sense. Because with his vast experience, he has the ability to look at that and know exactly what those numbers mean and, and uh, how to put those together. So it was and that's you know honestly that's you know having having been a consultant for a lot of years in this industry myself that's that's one of the things that understanding be able you know collecting data is not nearly as hard as being able to decipher what data means exactly <laughs> you know, it, it's exactly. you're a technician yeah. as far as collecting data but it actually you know gleaning some you know some valuable information is tough um so you mentioned rachel you mentioned uh, earlier just you briefly touched on uh, ability to detect virus detect viruses such as yeah. uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, awesome. So yeah, so that's, uh, t tell us a little bit more about that. I'm just curious. Not, well, not to get uh, off on a tangent, but you, you piqued my interest. Ooh, well, that's, that's great. Um, we actually have done uh, quite a few studies. We've been in a study with, um, were mentioned in a paper through the University of Nebraska. Um, they used our device for COVID analysis in a school and they used it to compare um, the air testing to the surface testing. Um, so we were able to show uh, that we were able to detect COVID in that particular school. Um, we've also done studies with the University of Chicago, which showed COVID detection in hospital settings. And we were also able to do, we did two environmental chamber studies where we uh, collected COVID in an environmental chamber. 
So we've been able to to validate that our device does in fact capture uh, SARS-CoV-2, which has been which has been wonderful. So then I would think that that technology would also be uh, applicable maybe for other airborne yes. born viruses, right? Um, so any type yeah. of pathogen really it's I, so, so what, I guess one of the one of the the key points here is that you're able to capture very small particles. Yes, yeah. down to 0.1 microns, which is like viruses. So we're mm -hmm. able to, to collect those. So um, one of the interesting thing is in developing some of our uh, menus that we have in the uh, in the laboratory is we're looking at certain viruses that our people are interested in bacteria. And um, there's just so many things that we can do with this device. So Michael, um, so, so in, in reviewing this data, uh, for the articles, um, and, I, and I'm assuming you know, I know I've known you a lot of years, so I, I'm sure you went in objectively, and, and I'm that way too. You know, I've, we've we've spent so many decades in the industry. You know, I always have a bit of skepticism on anything because uh, you know I've, I've had a lot of things shoveled my way that weren't you know really weren't accurate. So, but but when we uh, did the interview with Rachel last year, I definitely, I, and I met those guys prior to it, about a year prior to that at an industry trade show. Um, very interested in this whole technology. Mm -hmm. um, so, in your in your article, you, you propose this as maybe an augment uh, to uh, you know, an augment, uh, an analytical, not analytical, but a capture protocol, or uh, maybe something that uh, you know could even be competitive against uh, our uh, standard uh, spore trap. So that, that being said, uh, you know, so what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'll have to apologize on that one, Bob, because uh, you cut out and oh. I think it might have been my um, internet connection there. We, we don't have the most stable here. At the, oh, that, that, that's okay. So my, my question for you, Michael, was, um, you know, is, so you had the chance to review this data on the air answers collection, uh, comparing it. Uh, in a in a small field study, it's you know a five house field study, right? Um, yeah. it, it versus spore trap uh, standard spore trap collection, um, and uh, so get to the get to the short order. Uh, what do you, what are you finding that's uh, that came out that surprised you or new and different? Okay, so two main things really hit me, and one was if it is going to be something that is going to be useful in the industry. Um, that we should be getting some similarity, if not, uh, you know, 100% uh, matching with other sampling systems. Uh, if Air Answers comes in and says we are so different that you can't even compare your past results to what we're doing, that would give me pause and say, well, I'm really, uh, you know, are, aren't we measuring the same air now? I think everybody who's done this for a little bit understands that there's that whole variability issue. You can run two spore trap samples side by side and have uh, different numbers. Uh, but if you do enough samples side by side, uh, you should be able to start see uh, some similarities in the data. And so that was the first thing that I was excited about is that there is that similarity, but uh, not exact sameness between what we're getting on the mold side with the air answers and what we were getting with spore traps. So that was exciting. Um, the other thing that I found very interesting was by adding the beta glucans and the mycotoxins to the air sampling, which uh, 
you know, I'm not familiar with absolutely every sampling methodology in the world, but those are things that I'm not, haven't seen in, um, you know, practical use in the, in our field anyway, to be able to get the mycotoxins with all of the input that we're getting on mycotoxins these days and the interest that we're getting on that area from the doctors and the uh, contractors that then have to clean this stuff up. Uh, to me, that was exciting to see that on the air answers. And then to find out that, uh, fortunately, not every house that has uh, spores in it in the air has mycotoxins in the air. And that matches up with uh, my common sense as well, that the mycotoxins are only produced by certain molds. And generally when they're under stress, right? You can have stachybotrys, but if it's uh, fat and sassy and living in a water damaged piece of drywall that's not being, you know, uh, attacked by bacteria or other sorts of mold, why would it waste time creating poisons, which is basically what the mycotoxins are? So there just was a whole lot of stuff from, admittedly, as, as you said, a very small sample size that still seemed to validate some of the, um, you know, new uh, opportunities that the air answers brings to the field. One of the things that, uh, you know, this graphic was from the article that um, that we, we published a few months back. And uh, what, what I found striking is that when, you know, on the far left, you're, you're comparing a, a typical spore trap uh, sample. So, you know, the standard, I would say, would be five minutes at 15 liters per minute. So you're collecting about 75 liters of air. In, in a typical spore trap, very short excursion, a five minute excursion. Um, and in, in this small study, Rachel, right, uh, and Michael, uh, you did multiple interviews. That's what that's why you have multiple uh, air answers devices. There were one hour, a two hour, I think there was a three hour, and then there was like a one day and five day. Is that, did I leave one out? Uh, no, that sounds about right. Uh, actually, there were two one hour. Well, two one hour. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's hour. how you get six there. But those are the, those are the intervals. Exactly mm -hmm. right. So that in of itself is unique because we're used to, you know, and again, I would argue that Spore Trap is, you know, we've had other guests on in the past that have, you know, that have you know, really challenged Spore Trap as the de facto default for, you know, mold consulting. And I'm a consultant too. And, you know, I think it's a tool in the belt, but, uh, you know, certainly there's vast limitations to Spore Trap and sampling and analysis and interpretation uh, across the board, right? I mean, but it, it is a tool that is commonly used, you know, to, to your article, Michael. It's very regularly used. Um, so I guess that's the one to compare it against. Not necessarily saying that uh, spore traps are the gold standard for what we should be doing, but they are what we are doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, leaving it so, at that. So this is unique that you can take different, you know, extended intervals in a space, correct? Yeah. Well, well I think. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to cut in and just add to the yeah. other point there, Bob, that uh, um, th they're all tools. And that's the attitude that I take in the industry is that, uh, you know, you can do a great inspection without taking samples. But a lot of times you do need the samples, depending on what you're doing with your inspection. And th the key in my mind is to understand what is it that the air answers can bring to us, that it's a tool that other tools can't. And so to me, that's uh, what we really want to start to focus on is how can this tool be useful to the indoor air quality professional uh, because it offers something that some of the other tools do not. 
I mean, one of the one of the key points I would say that you know that we have limitations with spore traps in that it's a very short excursion, it's a very limited volume of air, and the collection efficiency as far as the actual distance, you know, far from the collection point isn't very far you know so we you know we're 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 sticking a tripod in an environment we're looking at uh one little volume of air effectively what two and a half cubic feet ish of air so that's you know that's a volume of air about this big in a typical spore trap it's about what we have to look at uh this device with an extended uh sampling ability you're you're thousands of uh, liters of air right are going through this device oh yeah it's uh, up to 150 liters of air per minute so you're looking at more like hundreds of thousands um, of liters of air going through this device. So yeah. again, you know, so intuitively you'd say that the more the more air you move through, the more reflective that would be of what maybe is occurring in the space, you know, accounting for all the dynamics that are happening in a space. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And that's been one of so, that's I was gonna say that's been one of my my trepidations as a consultant all these years is that we, you know we take these five minute excursion samples to get a couple, couple cubic feet of air. And then many people in the industry try to extrapolate that into be 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year for a space. And it's like, Whoa, that's a big leap of faith. So one of the things I put in the article, I think is just really excites me about something in the future that could and should, in my opinion, be standard in the industry would be for the restoration contractor. I mean, you can take this air answers and run it for up to five days. So why not take an air answers, put it outside your containment and run one sample over the two or three days that you're doing the, uh, you know, work to help ensure that you actually have negative pressure and you're not, uh, you know, allowing excess spore levels or anything to, migrate out of your containment into the occupied areas of the home. And well, you can't I'd that argue that a lot of contractors don't want that type of oversight, but that's another story. <laughs> but the, and you're right on that. But the point of the matter is that you can't practically do that with a sampling system that has to be changed every five or even, you know, go twice as long, go to a 10 minute uh, kind of excursion style sample. And how many of those would you have to run mm -hmm. uh, over the course of multiple days as compared sure. to one uh, air answers? So different sampling technology, new things that are happening. And I think you're going to see, uh, you know, eventually the industry will pick up on this. And then you're going to see a lot of smart people smarter than I am trying to figure out how to use it. And uh, it, it'll be like sport traps, right, from the standpoint mm -hmm. that. 20 years ago, uh, they weren't using them the same way that we're using them now. Well, I mean, let's go way back because we're old guys, right? I mean, you know, sport, back in the original sport trap days, we were greasing our own slides with lithium grease. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if you were using, I was using Allergenco doing the multi-traces, uh, which was interesting, but, you know, just yeah. challenging. You know, we're using, a, you know, a single Burkhart unit to try to get a, a sport trap. Sport traps were not easy in the early 90s at all. Yeah, well, I, was, I'm going to... I'm going to try and one up you there, brother, and say, uh, did you ever use a roto rod where you had to grease the uh, glass rods that spun around in the air? No, I've, I saw those and I, I just, I mean, I could just see a consultant with one of those and a sling psychrometer doing this simultaneously. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, it just seemed a little crazy. 
<laughs> well, anyway, let's just say that the technology has improved. But sure. again, those are the things. If if we're not moving forward in the industry, then uh, then we're dead, right? So uh, I I get a kick out of talking about all the old stuff uh, on occasion and everything. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to go back to rotor rods. I don't want to go back to greasing my own slides. I don't want to go back to no. you know trying to figure out if I've got the right amount of adhesive in a thin layer right where I need it. That's just crazy talk. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the ethics, again, if we're trying to capture small particles and particles, you know, drop out at different rates due to size, you've got the Brownian effects, you've got, you know, you've got air currents. I mean, there's all these factors that it it seems to me the larger volume of air you look at, the more indicative that's going to be of what's happening in the space. No question about it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you take a very short excursion, very limited volume and you get take it at one strat or one height, basically, you know, you miss a lot. There's no question about it. So, so th- this is exciting in that regard, and and the fact that you can do multiple uh, multiple assays off of a single sample that that seems beneficial. Oh, yeah. um, one of the so here's a question for, for I guess it's more for Rachel, but Michael too. Looking at this, is the time factor one of the reasons that spore traps became popular? Is well, two two reasons, <laughs> uh, cost because <laughs> you know you know, and uh, now I sound like Monty Python bit. Uh, two of the three reasons, uh, you know, it's it's basically you know the cost, the convenience, right? Easy to handle, you know, mm-hmm. uh, almost almost indestructible somewhat, um, and uh, you could have a quick turnaround time. Direct microscopy literally could be read in the field. Somebody could have a field scope and read it right there. So. How, how does that compare to, you know, what you're offering with your technology? I know the samples have to be shipped to a lab and analyzed. So turnaround. Well, yeah. what's the turnaround time? Uh, for, for beta-glucan, which is our, our test for um, actively growing mold. So we use that as an indicator for actively growing mold in the environment. Um, it's a 24-hour turnaround time once it gets to the laboratory. So um, it's a, a pretty good amount of time. And uh, one of the benefits also from using, you know, air answers versus the, the spore trap is uh, our device. It doesn't just capture the spores, but it also captures the smaller mold fragments in the air, as well as uh, um, beta-glucan itself, which is given off by actively growing mold into the air. So we're able to get a better overall reflection of the uh, the mold that's particularly growing in the space versus just a small amount of spores. So, and, so, and this technology, you know, the device basically is, it, it, it looks like a passive unit, right? But there is there a fan or how, how does it actually work? Uh, it uses a technology called electrokinetic capture. Um, I should have brought kind of a, a form to show you guys what it looks like, but on the mm-hmm. inside of the device, there is a high voltage wire, um, when you, um, when you plug the device in, that high voltage wire causes um, a congregation of um, positively charged uh, ions, uh, electrons, and they're moving around the wire. Um, there is, um, with the spore trap, they use like a, a cassette, the aerocell cassettes. We have a cartridge. So the metal electrodes on that cartridge have a negative charge. So any particulates that come in contact with um, that positive airflow um, get captured onto the uh, metal pieces on this cartridge. 
So there's no pump. It doesn't make any noise. You plug it in. The only way you can tell it's on is there's a ring at the bottom and it lights up green. So it's pretty interesting new technology. Yeah. And so is there an issue with overloading with this type of device? I mean, that, that's the other question I have. You know, one, Michael and I will both, you know, both uh, tell you that that's one of the concerns when you use a spore trap, right? Is, well, you know, with this, not at all. intervals and, you know, not overloading it. Mm -hmm. So it's not readable. Mm -hmm. Nope. No overloading issues at all with this uh, type of technology. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, um, I so, mean, my, my, Michael, you, so you, your I thoughts, gonna... I was going to say, what, what, elaborate. Anyway, one of the things that's um, interesting and building on what Rachel just said there is that once you have that capture and then they take it off and they're using that uh, quantitative uh, polymerase mm -hmm. chain reaction. So, you're you are able to look at the fragments and some of the smaller things and that's why uh, their results come back very much like an ermi sample which is using the same sort of um, uh, technology and you're getting it reported as spore equivalents rather than just spores so when we're looking at it optically on a spore trap sample and you've got a broken spore if you you know if there's not enough of that spore to actually uh, give a positive determination as to what that is. Uh, it's in there. It, it might get counted as, uh, you know, miscellaneous or uh, unidentified, but uh, with a qPCR, mm -hmm. you're actually able to take that fragment of a spore, you're extracting some of the DNA from it. And so you're actually being, uh, you're able to tell, as Rachel said earlier, right down to the genus level, what that is. Well, that, but that's qualitative. So but there, I'm also understanding, at least from the article, that there's there's a quantitative aspect of that as well, right? That you actually can tell the the, you know, we, the we do provide uh, the concentration. So um, our laboratory, as Mike was saying, uses uh, polymerase chain reaction. It's qPCR. It's the same type of methodology that's used when you um, have a COVID sample and you you have it sent in and you have it tested with PCR. So we're looking at the sample down to um, the genetic material. So even if you have a piece of the, uh, the spore or, or smaller fragments, um, we're able to detect that and to quantify that um, using this device and, and our type of testing. And I mean, again, I, I, I've been a big proponent in always um, looking at any of these indoor envir environmental investigations, especially mold, uh, mold-based ones, at uh, looking at things multiple ways, right? If you just live by one sampling methodology, one technology, in my mind, you t I think you miss things a lot. You have an opportunity, you know, it's like you have the blinders on, the six men from Indistan uh, uh, story with the elephant, you know, it's like, it, and I've said that so many times, but it, it seems like if, if you look at a very limited window, you get a very limited picture. Um, and I, I would, I would suggest that a spore trap does give you a certain window of information mm -hmm. that qPCR doesn't, you know, that analyzing for, you know, beta D glucan may not, you know, it's it, so, so I, I'm not, in my mind, I'm seeing that as, you know, th as this is an augment technology, maybe uh, am, am I, you know, totally off base on that or how, how do you guys see it? Well, <laughs> I don't think so. I think you're right on because uh, you know, the, the other analogy that gets used all the time is, 
if the only tool you have in your uh, tool belt is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if if the only thing that you're using is uh, spore traps, then every every health uh, issue that somebody brings up or every uh, you know problem that comes upon is going to be a mold problem. And that's not the case. I just, uh, as an example, did a, a rather large inspection, used air answers, used spore traps, used uh, mycotoxin testing, uh, used uh, uh, Instascope, and um, then even did VOC sampling and was surprised uh, that the some of the bigger issues were the VOCs as compared to some of the mold things. They were all there. They were all uh, you know, all sorts of things going on in the, in the home, but the uh, volatile organic, the chemicals are something that uh, was probably one of the most important aspects of the uh, findings as compared to some of the other things. Yeah, and I, I think there's, there has been, uh, you know, with the advent of these uh, sport trap cassettes, you know, and there's several different brands out there. Um, there, I think there has been, maybe a flood of people into the industry uh, that maybe are, I'm not going to say ill-informed, but maybe not, not fully educating on understanding what they're doing, you know, and they, and they use that as their pass fail for an environment, you know, a spore trap reading in an environment is either good or bad. It's like, yeah, that's one like small piece of the puzzle clearly. And it seems like at least this technology uh, you know, that your company's bringing to the table, Rachel, at least has the opportunity to do multiple assays and look at multiple parameters simultaneously. So that's, that seems valuable mm -hmm. for a longer excursion too. Um, exactly. I, but the efficacy for the one hour excursion though, I mean, I, I, I looked at the, the, the limited data in the article and it did look like you had, it, it lined up similar, the, the beta glucan analysis uh, in a one hour sample versus the longer duration samples. Mm -hmm. So has, has that been what you've seen in the end, you know, in, in the use of this device is like it, the shorter that, excursions? That is, okay. we, we do have the ability to do the one hour samples and we have done um, quite a bit of testing. So we've been able to um, validate that we're able to do that. Um, I, I will say that uh, similar to um, using the one hour sample and the spore traps, um, you, if somebody's coming into the room and kicking up a bunch of things, you're going to see that peak, even if you have that one hour sampler that you are running. Um, so if you're going to do the one hour sample, it, it's best to, um, do it in a room where people aren't going to be moving around a whole bunch and possibly kicking up that, that mold into the air. Um, so the, with the one hour sample, what's not the one hour, but with the 24 hour, you're you're not seeing that variability um, over a period of time. So you're you're getting a big overall picture. Um, the one hour it does work really well, but again, um, I wouldn't be running around and moving around it because if there's any big peak or if it captures um, um, a large amount of mold that's going to the air all at once, it's going to show up um, high. Well, so, I mean, you're basically, you're, you're doing this more of a quiescent type sampling methodology, right? Where you're just trying to just get what's happening. <clears throat> There's been a lot of discussion in the industry of doing uh, uh, either, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to get the term wrong here. Uh, aggr aggressive sampling has been used in asbestos, but the augmented type sampling protocols for spore traps, where you actually do so, you, you generate some disturbance in the space. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
that's something that again you're you're looking at more you're you're looking at a longer term excursion for the collection time as opposed to a five minute spore trap where you're you're really trying to get a profile of a space very quickly so mm -hmm. uh, so i guess the enhanced sampling protocols with your technology wouldn't make sense right they would probably skew it well i mean it, it's going to be similar to what you would see with particularly the spore trap itself because the spore trap, even though you're running it for a short period of time, it is very susceptible to any kind of variability in the air. I mean, you can run it in one area um, for a short period of time, and then you can run that area again next hour and get completely different results. So Sure. Well, you can if, run them side by side and get different results. I mean, exactly. On, you know. Exactly. So this is the same. You run it for an hour. If a bunch of people are kicking things around it, um, you know, you might see that little bit of, of increase. And uh, so it is a little more susceptible to any kind of variation, um, variability versus the 24 hour, which you're not going to see if someone kicks a bunch of mold around in the room, um, you're not going to see that high peak. You're going to see it all kind of, you know, uh, balance out so that you're going to get a better picture of everything that's going in on the particular room for that period of time. But we have validated the one hour. The one hour does work if you want to use it for a shorter period of time, if you want to get in and out of um, an establishment, you have to get in there and, and you're doing a bunch of things and set it up and you can get out and, and that's fine too. And that works just as well. Um, but like the spore trap, you're going to deal with a little bit of variability. Mm -hmm. Which makes total sense. I so uh, elephant, elephant in the room, you know, um, pricing, you know, because obviously spore traps became, uh, maybe the favorite sun due to speed, right. Being able to turn around rapidly yeah. and, uh, because they got very cost competitive as far as the services analysis services got fairly inexpensive. So, you know, how, how are we stacking up? You have multiple assays here. I know QPCR isn't inexpensive. Uh, so where are we at with this? Well, um, what, what what's interesting about using our devices, you don't have to use multiple aerosol cassettes. So, when you're doing spore collection, you're going to use multiple in different areas of the house and you got an outside sample with our device. You use just one per area, um, 2,500 square foot home, or if it's a larger establishment, um, then you might want to put one on, you know, um, another floor or something like that. And just, just keep all the doors on the internal side open. So it gets a good reflection of, of, of what you're being exposed to on a regular basis. Um, but, when you look at the price cost with the spore collection and the number of samples that you're going to need versus one of ours, it ends up actually being cheaper to use just ours. Okay. I mean, that, that's fair enough. So, um, Bob, Michael. I'm going to yeah. jump in on that if you don't mind. Please do. And I, and I understand, you know, it's not a perfect world and we do have to consider cost and everything, but, I just share with you the majority of uh, inspections that I'm doing these days, uh, they they want answers, and you know that's why we're doing multiple different types of sampling, and that is going to drive up the cost. So one of the things I like about the air answers is that I can take that test, and I can uh, you know send it in for the mold uh, uh, you know assay, so to speak. And then if it turns out that that doesn't help me or maybe I don't send it in for the mold, I send it in for the mycotoxins because I've got spore trap uh, side by side or something that is going to give me the mold information until I see something unusual 
and then I'm able to go back to the air answers lab and say, well, okay, I didn't initially want the mold stuff. I only wanted the mycotoxins, but now I want the mold. Or I didn't want the mold or the mycotoxins. I'm trying to control my costs. I only wanted the beta-glucans, but now I see some stuff. So I want you to go back and take a look at this. And that ability from my standpoint to go back and relook at that uh, sample and actually run different analysis uh, and this is coming from a guy who really understands the spore traps and knows that I can go back and reanalyze the spore traps, but I'm getting the same, you know, basically getting the same information, whereas they're able to do the analysis in different ways and give me completely different information. That is cool uh, from my perspective. Just... It's the same, is the same uh, collection cassette capable of doing the uh, the allergen sampling simultaneously or is that a separate do you have a separate collection device for that well, i'm just curious allergen, no it actually if you want to let's say you want to do a mold test and you want to run it over a five-day period of time the allergens have to be um done um due to our our testing and our the type of sampling we've done it has to be over a five-day period of time to get an okay. overall accurate picture mm -hmm. of some of these allergens especially if you're looking at like cockroach and everything that are going to be on the lower end of the spectrum sure um but you could do, um, let's say you do a beta-glucan assay, which is our actively growing mold screening assay. Um, you can add on other, like uh, our genera testing, our mycotoxin testing. Um, we have a new panel coming out for immunocompromised individuals. Um, you can add that onto it. So we keep it in the laboratory for 60 days. So you can add on these different types of tests. And that can be from the, from one collected five-day sample yes. can do all that. Okay. That, that, well, I mean, or, that's, um, that's advantageous. Yeah. Five day sample if and the five days if you want to add on the if you want to have the allergen testing, mm -hmm. but if you have a one hour beta glucan sample that you want to do and we have it in the laboratory, you can ask us, hey, can you test it for mycotoxins? Can you mm -hmm. test it for mold genera? So um, we have the ability to keep it for sixty days so people can add on other testing as needed. So I've got to raise the question too with um, with mycotoxin testing, you know. It, at least it's the general school of thought, I think, in the industry is that it's it's mainly collected via surface sampling more so than, you know, mm -hmm. than air sampling. So have you been doing that? For, like what's I guess what what have you seen the results? Because the study didn't seem to detect uh, mycotoxin. But again, five samples, that's not very many, you know, or five sample sites. Um we have been seeing it in quite a few samples. Have you? Okay. Um, yeah. So we have, and what we're what we're detecting itself is we're detecting it's the type of assay we're doing is an expression assay. So we're looking at the mold that's expressing the the particular mycotoxins. So when it's in the um, when it's actively expressing a particular mycotoxin, that's what we're detecting. Okay. So Ex explain that. <laughs> I'm just, I, I, I was like, I, the term expressing, I, I, I don't want to sound ignorant, but I'm looking I, at what? like uh, certain laboratories that are looking at parts per billion mycotoxins, they're detecting the chemical itself. Okay. Um, what we're detecting is the mold that's expressing the uh, mycotoxin. So when that particular mold is expressing mycotoxin, we're able to detect that part that it's expressing. No. So, so what happens, uh, Bob? Just as well, the layperson's, yeah, the, the <laughs> layperson's analogy here, 
is that if you have ever seen any of those um, super micrograph pictures of the mold spores, and they blow them up like a hundred thousand times or something like that. Sure. And uh, the mycotoxins are essentially exuded or expressed or, uh, you know, released, pressed out. Uh, and they're, they're heavier compounds. I mean, when you see them on these uh, photographs, like I said, these greatly magnified photographs, it actually looks like little tar balls or something that's mm -hmm. coming right out of the edge of the spore. So um, that's for the standard surface mycotoxin testing. And I, I have to admit, I'm not, uh, you know, a laboratory person like Rachel, but they actually have to get some of that liquid that's a uh, you know that then um, volatizes and gets into the air that's what they have to get uh, for the mycotoxin testing from the surface that's also my understanding of what they're measuring on the biological samples of the mycotoxin when they get somebody's urine and check that for mycotoxins they're they're literally checking the residue from that uh, mold spore and Rachel's um, process there at air answers they're looking at the spores and they have a way of identifying which of those spores are at the point where they're pressing out or releasing that mycotoxin okay that's what i'm here for by the way i i take all this scientific stuff and i try and make it in a uh, well, you know, you're really that, you're really good at it so people that understand well that's you know quite honestly that's but that's part of the business multi yeah. Yeah, yep. multiple decades is uh, to take uh, scientific stuff and understand it enough that you can explain it in layperson's terms. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's why I'm successful as an instructor as well. I can yeah. share that with people. So well, I mean, that's critically important. I mean, especially, you know, clients, certainly, you know, it's easy to recognize that with consumers or you know, residential lay people, but e even people that are facilities managers and, you know, they're not experts in these areas. You know, they, no, they call no. it. So, so I, I, I found in my career, 35 plus years, always, you know, I'm always been spending a lot of time educating people. You know, you got, you have to explain, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? You know, what is the logic behind it? Um, I don't want to lose the point there on the mycotoxins if I can from it, just sure. to, again, keep completing these loops so that the audience here understands a little bit better about some of the capabilities of the air answer. And that is that the, um, you know, we, we do have the ability to analyze mycotoxins from surface samples. Uh, we have had the ability for several years now to analyze, as I said, mycotoxins in biological samples. To be able to take this leap and, you know, determine mycotoxins in the air, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, this is one of the areas that just truly intrigues me because I think that we're gonna be able to start making more and more connections between um, environments and people's health. And we already know the allergens and the chemicals and just the regular dust particles and all sorts of things, uh, mold spores, all of that has an impact on people's health. Mm -hmm. And the more we can understand about how the mycotoxins uh, impact it, I think the better off we're gonna be. And so this particular technology in that arena just really seems to me to be something I'd love to see more people get involved with and more testing done and, you know, 
collating uh, data, not from, you know, five houses, but 50 houses, 500 sure. houses, and, yeah. and start to see what those numbers look like. Well, being able to understand the pathways seems really important too, you know, because again, you know, a lot of, you know, we've got a lot of data on mycotoxins being ingested and what clinically happens with that, There's tons of data on that. Uh, but the inhalation pathway has always been the one that's been suspect. Everybody says we don't know enough and, and, and we, we haven't had a way to really analyze, you know, that in an in aerosolized form really very well. And, and worse yet, I would go farther as to say that the, um, aerosolized um, or inhalation of the mycotoxins has been rejected by a lot of people as as you know having enough impact on individuals to actually be you know creating some of these ill health mm -hmm. uh, consequences. So I'm I'm interested in disproving that uh, non scientific uh, assessment at this point. Well, I'm I'm very interested in getting more scientific assessment. <laughs> <laughs> and learn and learning more, you know, because I mean, I think we're still at, you know, in many ways at the infantile stages, especially at this industry with dealing with assessing mold and understanding the, the correlation with the, you know, the human health impacts. You know, we, I mean, we, you know, like what spores per cubic meter, what does that mean to an individual? You know, like, you know, that concentration of aerosolized in an environment, what, what is the physiological effect on an individual? We don't, you know, we don't know that really. And, and how do you take that and match that with each individual? You know, you've got not only the environment and the concentration, but the individual genetics of each person. Uh, these are these are questions I think that we're getting closer to answering, and we're certainly uh, starting to see some correlations. But we uh, absolutely need to keep going here. Yeah, I mean, they're super, they're super challenging questions, you know, and Michael, you, so you've been dealing with this, you know, in the industry for four plus decades. You don't look that old, but anyway, it, it, it but it, you, you have to acknowledge that it, it is, it is a challenge, right? I mean, this is, is certainly, uh, you know, we, we get called on to go in as consultants, professionals get called on to go into buildings, go into facilities, whether it be or, or somebody's residence or a commercial facility, public facility. And, you know, we're starting at ground zero and trying to, you know, there's so many different layers potentially, right, in the indoor environmental investigation. Certainly biologicals could be part of it, but often they're not the only thing, you know, and I think it's it's hard. It's very hard to try to, to communicate this information to the variety of clients we have to deal with right so they they, they think we're going to have a tricorder like star trek and have a device and you you know you know scotty's there or, or what or doc is all you know with the tricorder seeing you know whether everything's good or bad and test our air H how do we get past that and how do we educate the public more especially and i'm going to i'm going to add a, a piece to this you know we're coming off or at least starting to get to a waning point with this global pandemic i mean certainly it's not over but we have an acute, I think, awareness in the general public of indoor environmental issues now, right? Air issues, people are a little more tuned to that, you know, having had two plus years of, of this pandemic. So how do we take that and translate that into moving this forward and making, uh, you know, substantive change and, you know, positive actions? I'm going to throw that at you, Michael, with all your years of wisdom. Well, I appreciate that. So <laughs> no, you don't. The, the, <laughs> um, the, 
the quick rephrase of that question is that people expect us to have answers. And many times we can provide answers. And I, I don't want to overemphasize the, the few cases where we can't, but the reality of the situation is that given the limits that we're seeing in terms of how we can do sampling and what we can do from an investigation standpoint and all of the rest of it, there are some cases that it's just difficult to come up with an answer. And uh, I, that's why I'm so excited about the AIR answers because it's another tool that we can utilize to help resolve some of these questions in our clients' minds. And just like anything else, uh, like we've been talking about throughout this, you have to know what the capabilities are of the tool. You have to use it properly and you have to know how to interpret the information. And we're just at the front end of the curve with the air answers on answering some of those uh, or, or addressing some of those issues of it. And that's why I continue to say I see a bright future for it. Uh, because it fills in some gaps that we have mm -hmm. when we're using other pieces of technology. And regardless of that, regardless of the fact that we now have air answers, there's still going to be some, uh, you know, situations and some questions that we can't answer, uh, you know, all the homeowners or the business owners concerns because it's, you know, what's well, a complex mix. Yeah, it's a real world, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's so many potential constituents and factors involved here. A lot of variables. This is, this is not, you know, again, there isn't a single device that analyzes. There's not a single parameter. And then physiologically, all all of us humans react different to these different constituents. So, you know, in many cases. So it, it's challenging. <laughs> exactly. And the, the one that I was telling you about earlier, I mean, all these years of experience and it certainly seemed like this was going to be a mold issue and there's water damage and we're finding pressure differentials and all this other stuff. And as it turned out, in this uh, uh, case in the um, Washington, D.C. area, the, the VOCs, the chemicals, the, the one of the basic steps that we take in terms of some of our, uh, you know, indoor air quality analysis for the last 25 years, turned out to be probably the biggest factor that's impacting the people in that home. We have a question from the audience. I'm going to read this question uh, just because it'll take too long to get it up on the cryon. Uh, it's from Terry Sofer. Hi, Terry. Happy you're here. Uh, his comment uh, was, not every mold spore in the air has mycotoxins, so what? And no surprise. That does not mean uh, no health hazards. Uh, not expecting mycotoxin in every spore for a variety of reasons. If mycotoxin and non-mycotoxin species are, are, uh, are present at some point, mycotoxins emit or can be emitted and all molds are allergens. Mycotoxins are emitted uh, by all cells of mycotoxic species, not only by spores. Um, that was, I know it's a long one. Okay. It's, it's a lot of words there, and uh, that's why I didn't try to even bring it across here. So, so I guess the I guess the question is you know, whether or not you're it, it is. I guess the question here is is the mycotoxin actually the litmus test we should be looking for or not? Uh, paraphrase. Well, uh, the mycotoxin itself it, it doesn't have to be just the spore. That's correct. Um, it could be other parts of the mold that's expressing this particular mycotoxin in the air. Um, we're just now kind of starting to collect this information. We've got quite a bit of information so far that we were able to detect the mycotoxins in the air. So um, the types that we are 
um, detecting are actually being released. Now, um, further down the line, once we collect, you know, thousands of particular samples, we can go back and do kind of a meta-analysis of, you know, um, the where they were detected, um, what the genuses, because we also looked at the mold genera in those types and those samples as well. So we can do kind of an overall comparison and learn some more information about that. About that. But um, right now we're just um, we're just starting to uh, see detection of this in the air. Great. And I, I don't know if I responded well to that, but uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure uh, how to separate the question out of there from some of the statements. But yeah, it was more, it, 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 it was a long one. It was a long one. Yeah, but I do agree with what Rachel said from the standpoint that, and our questioner, uh, from the standpoint yeah. that yes, um, a lot of the different uh, molds that are called toxigenic mold can release the mycotoxins, and as I was explaining earlier, they don't always do that. Uh, but the fact that they're there and there's those types, I absolutely agree. That means that if the conditions change, the environmental conditions change, mm -hmm. that patch of stachybotrys that wasn't producing stachycillin yesterday or this morning could start doing that. Uh, I'm not sure how you get around that in terms of other than having these different sampling methods and having as much information as possible and not ignoring uh, the implications of that. If I have stachybotrys uh, in the air, that's uh, that's a bad sign to me. If mm -hmm. I have stachybotrys in the air on a sport trap sample and I've got uh, stachycillin expressed in, and captured in the air answer sample, that's another piece of the puzzle that's sure. telling me not only is it possible, but at that time that I was sampling, it was actually happening. So to me, that's additional information to give to the homeowner and and particularly if that homeowner is having health effects that their doctor or their functional medicine person has said uh, could be related to the, um, you know, mycotoxins in their system. So, well, I mean, clearly, you know, if we look at it just through one lens, right, one sampling methodology or one way of, you know, looking at the environment where it's like trying to understand what a jigsaw puzzle looks like holding one piece right you know and, and so the more pieces of the puzzle we have i i, I guess to, to summarize the, the the better picture we get of what we're actually looking at and we can make more of a uh, informed observation and decision of as to what what to be what to what's occurring and what to be done with it um so th this is exciting stuff so i'm really uh you know I, I love the articles i love that that was up there rachel i'm um, happy that you were able to come here and talk a little bit of tech yeah. on, on the products and, uh, yeah. and uh michael it's always a pleasure to have you anyway it's like you you you, <laughs> you bring you bring an interesting very calm uh perspective to things he's yeah, I know. yeah he's more calming than me i i have a tendency to get more more erratic you know <laughs> um so i you know one of the things i do want to mention so many of you may be watching this broadcast um on somewhere else other than our online community you may be seeing it um anywhere actually and any, any number of other places uh facebook youtube linkedin uh but i would like to uh like to point out that we uh do have the online community and uh it's something that you may be interested in if you're not part of it you're not watching it there this is uh an online portal that we launched at healthy indoors a while back now we're going full-blown and pushing it and it's a it's a networking platform if you notice as you look at it it looks a lot like a social media platform but it's a bit more than that it's social media plus content plus live streaming plus you know 
on and on and on. And uh, we have, you know, we have that ability to, uh, to to actually mold it into whatever we want. So I we're we're super excited about this platform, and we're really encouraging people to take a look at it. It's uh, you can learn more about it at uh, global.healthyindoors.com. If you're already watching the show there, you can poke around. Obviously, getting a membership gets you a lot more access to it. Um, so we'd highly recommend that. Um, certainly, uh, I'd like to again thank our guests joining us today, uh, Michael Pinto and Ra- Rachel Robillet. Uh, great to have you guys here. It was, it was, it was an interesting discussion. I'm sure we're going to hear more about this technology and uh, you know applications for it uh, going forward. Um, so thanks again, guys. It was it was great. It was great. Well, Well, uh, Robert, you're always an interesting and fun uh, person to chat with, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, maybe next time it will be at one of the conferences and there can be an adult beverage in our hands. Ooh, well, don't don't tease me that way. No, yes, I, I do like having an adult beverage in my hand. There's a, I'm no I'm no stranger to that. Um, and an in-person conference would be good. I, it's uh, again, there's a lot of questions online about whether we're quite ready to have you know massive gatherings together and how long we're still going to have these hybrid uh, online and in-person events. Uh, maybe forever, you know, which makes sense. So uh, yeah, I guess I guess with that, um, we're at the end of our time for this week because uh, it always goes so fast. Um, uh, we have um, next week coming up next Thursday, Michael Rubino will be joining us as our guest, and uh, we'll have some interesting conversation with him. He'll be a first-time guest on the Healthy Endurance Show, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, following week, we have Jay West coming in from Chicagoland. He is one of our co-hosts on the uh, monthly After Hour Show, uh, and that, that, that'll be interesting. So we're, we're looking forward to both of those. So until uh, you know, until next week, we'll we'll be back here again uh, next uh, next Thursday from one to two p.m. Eastern Daylight Time uh, for the Healthy Indoors Show. Uh, I'm Bob Krell. Uh, thanks for joining us this week, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again soon. <laughs>